Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, an initiative aimed at explaining Ukraine to international audiences. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and we are glad to have here Andres Umland, who is a senior expert at Institute for Euro-Atlantic Cooperation. Good afternoon, Andres. Thank you very much, Volodymyr, for having me. Big pleasure and honor for me to be here with you. Uh, Andres, my first question, you have a very good experience in analyzing both Russia and Ukraine. You're probably one of the best German experts in Eastern Europe. How would you define the difference in political cultures between Ukraine and Russia? Well, unfortunately, the um, difference between Ukraine and Russia is often uh, among large parts of the public in the West not seen uh, that well so far. I think uh, one of the biggest differences is simply that the uh, Russian culture is much better known outside um, Russia than Ukrainian culture is seen, um, is known on outside, outside Ukrainian Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the um, many differences uh, that uh, there is between Ukraine and Russia is paradoxically, um, I would say, um, the bilingualism or biculturalism of Ukrainians, which is, I, th I think, also a reason why Ukrainians find it easier to um, communicate and to understand the um, so-called European values, um, uh, which we talk about today a lot, which are built basically on the idea of multiculturalism, of bilingualism, of biculturalism. So many people in the West are today bilingual, bicultural. They live in, in various cultures. And Ukrainians, in a way, are also used to that already. Uh, in, this, in that uh, very strange sense, actually, the presence of Russian culture here in Ukraine makes, uh, as I see it, Ukrainians... Um, sort of, so to say, more compatible to the uh, sort of multicultural setting of the current European Union, which is, uh, you know, where people live mostly in um, at least two cultures, in their national culture and in Anglo-Saxon um, international culture. But look, when we talk about Russia, we can also say that there is a Muslim part of Russian identity, there is Orthodox part, there is a Buddhist part of the uh, Russian national identity. We can say the same thing about Ukraine. There is a Jewish part, very important Muslim Crimean Tatar, of course, Slavic, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, Hungarian, etc. What is the difference? Well, um, actually, if you look at this, there isn't much difference because both countries um, uh, claim to be um, multicultural countries. But in fact, by international standards, both countries are national states because their um, minorities only comprise about 20% in both countries, almost uh, the same minorities comprise only 20% of the um, population. Uh, but for the other 80%, I think um, what applies is exactly what I just said, that r uh, ethnic Russians, they live in a monocultural, basically, world still, whereas Ukrainians, ethnic Ukrainians, are used to live in at within at least two cultures. Even uh, my observation in Western Ukraine is that de facto many Western Ukrainians, although they don't like to speak Russian and they would not advertise their knowledge of Russian culture, many of them would have read, let's say, Dostoevsky in original Russian language. And uh, that is something I think that structurally makes Ukrainians 
better uh, compatible, so to say, to, to Germans who, uh, who mostly live in their national culture, but also in Anglo-Saxon culture and are um, uh, multicultural. Yeah, to add what you're saying, it's probably quite probable that uh, a personality in Western Ukraine would would have read probably Dostoevsky in Russian, Shevchenko in Ukrainian, and Mitskevich in Polish. That's that's a possible scenario. But let me ask about political culture, because there is a hypothesis, which I personally share very much, that Russian political culture is centered around an idea of a tsar, of hierarchy, whereas Ukrainian political culture is much more chaotic. It comes from this Cossack times, or maybe even from medieval Kiev and Rus times, when it's it's all about pluralism, it's all about multiple centers of influence. Yeah. What do you think? Yes, I, I agree uh, with that. But this is, um, I think, that would have been the standard uh, uh, answer to your questions. I want I want to uh, answer something more provocatively and not uh, so well known. I've myself with a colleague of mine, Ingmar Bredis, who used to live here um, in Kiev as well, who is also um, a German-Ukraine expert. We we wrote an article about exactly this ten years ago, where we explained the the different and political traditions of Russia and Ukraine, um, referring to the Cossack tradition, to the Vice, um, to um, uh, the um, Orlik uh, constitution and, and so on. Um, but in fact, if you look carefully into Russian history, you could find something like that as well. There were also Vice, there was, was also the Pskov tradition, there was also, um, so to say, a, a democratic tradition in Russia that if you wanted to find it, you could find it. It's just that this um, uh, sort of democratic strand of uh, uh, Russian tradition is not prevalent. And the uh, the emphasis in the official um, national culture of, of Russia today is very much on the on the Tsarist and, and Bolshevik and Stalinist tradition. Um, and therefore, uh, there's now this uh, this big difference, I agree, in, in the national culture of both uh, con- countries, which is much more pluralistic here in, in Ukraine than in Russia. You uh, wrote also a lot about this Eurasian kind of a theory in Russia, which which we we can trace from twenties, uh, early nineteen twenties, probably the this uh, Russian idea of uh, first Eurasian is that uh, Russia is a different civilization; it's not a Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do you think that this Eurasian identity is something that is prevalent in today's Russia, and this is the major line of conflict uh, compared to Ukraine, which is very you know very skeptical? About about all this Eurasian idea and, and, and is trying to choose this European kind of a model. Yes, that is a, um, a difference. Uh, there is no such uh, pretension in Ukraine about some sort of uh, separate civilization. Um, but in fact, this uh, let's say this Eurasian feature uh, that we have today in Russia reminds me very much of Germany um, before uh, World War II, where we also had the idea that Germany is in fact not a Western nation, that it is a, a nation separate from the Western tradition. That That's what the it, rhetoric of Weimar Republic is. It was in 20s and 30s. uh, That was the rhetoric of Nazism, but not only of Nazism, but also of of a broader um, circle of intellectuals, the so-called conservative revolution, who asserted in in ways parallel to the Eurasianists that Germans are not actually uh, Western people and they they are not inclined towards democracy and liberalism, but have their own special path. That's Uh, very interesting because mm -hmm. you as a German scholar 
because I have an, um, this impression too that basically uh, this Russian new ideology 21st century repeats what, what German conservatives were saying in early 20th century. Would you agree with this? Um, yes, and uh, in fact that has been already um, researched in uh, by people like Leonid Lux and Martin Beiswenger or Stefan Wiederkehr. So there are in Germany a number of scholars who um, who have written about this. And, and in fact, if you look at the intellectual biographies of people like Alexander Dugin, they've taken a lot of their ideas from Karl Schmitt, Martin he, Heidegger. He refers to them. Yeah, yeah he refers Le, to these German yeah, conservatives. Oswald Spengler and so on. And so um, the uh, the Eurasianism that we have today in, um, in Russia, the so-called neo-Eurasianism, is actually maybe even closer to the German conservative revolution than to the classical Eurasianism of the Russian emigration uh, in the 1920s because the the ideologies are actually closer to this uh, to these uh, um, ideas that that Spengler, Schmidt, Müller von den Brug, and so on have, uh, or Ernst Jünger have pronounced in the 1920s and 1930s. But little, this leads me to another question, which is that Germany had done this huge homework after the Second World War and revised everything. So it's it's very difficult in Germany, I I I guess, to talk about this, you know, uh, conservative revolutionism. Uh, do you think it is possible for Russia? Because Russia has less of this democratic tradition, which which is present in Germany, which was present in Germany in 19th mm. century. And uh, we understand that there is protest Protestantism and these influences of individualism, mm. etc. Do you think there can be any parallel for uh, Russia's future and Germany's uh, path in 20th century? Well, I'm both afraid of this uh, sort of uh, German, uh, this reception of the German conservative revolution in Russia because it seems to um, fit very well the needs of um, a part of at least, or I would say even a large part of the intellectual elite in Russia today who who likes uh, Schmidt and Jünger and Spengler and Heidegger and all these people very much. But on the other hand, it makes me also hopeful because we Germans, we got over it. And um, so, well, Heidegger is, is maybe a, a more uh, difficult figure because he was also an important um, uh, philosopher. Uh, but basically the other um, thinkers of the conservative revolution are stigmatized and they are also now in a way... Um, um, out out of uh, out of the zeitgeist today they were they, they had a certain meaning perhaps in the interwar period but today they just look archi archaic or an, um, not uh, not suitable for the 21st century but still there is this um, this enormous interest today in russia for these uh, for these thinkers who in a way they were not nazis themselves or mostly not nazis themselves but with their writings in the 1920s they um, prepared the um, the breakdown of the Weimar Republic. Let's come back to Ukraine because we are here in Kiev in Ukraine and we, we we are expected also to talk about Ukrainian politics. Well, this will be probably our last question, but we talked about Germany and Russia. Now let's talk about Germany and Ukraine. Uh, there, is, there is two sides of the story. First, Germany supports very much Ukraine. We, we understand the role of Angela Merkel who played in the Minsk agreements and around 
pressure on, on Putin. But on the other hand, there is a huge topic of Nord Stream 2, which is discussed in Ukraine. And basically, the more we are going to this topic, the more there is a discourse, very, very much critical discourse of, of Germany in Ukraine, saying that basically uh, Germany betrayed the European interests and interests of, of Ukraine as well. How would you estimate this uh, interpretation? Well, I've written already um, uh, in um, uh, when uh, uh, Nord Stream One was was being built and completed, and uh, I've pointed out before the annexation of Crimea the, the risks that the Nord Stream One pipeline um, was uh, was creating because it exactly it uh, brought about this disbalance, uh, geoeconomic disbalance in Eastern Europe. Uh, before there was this mutual dependence of Russia and Ukraine from each other and um, Nord Stream 1 um, uh, destroyed to a certain degree this um, this uh, geoeconomic balance and Nord Stream 2 will now even more destroy this geoeconomic balance. On the other hand, so I'm, I'm very critical of that and I'm cr I criticize that all the time in, in Germany and whenever a German journalist asks me about it. On the other hand, one has to say that um, unfortunately the way that sometimes Ukrainians here think uh, geopolitics should work, it does not work this way. There are private economic interests and it's usually not the case that uh, they become secondary. So sometimes when I got in, into really heated debates, I ask Ukrainians, why do you trade with China? Don't you know that China has um, annexed Tibet and is suppressing the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and this is an authoritarian regime? Shouldn't you stop all your trade with China yeah, if you are so principled? Yeah? Why should Germany s stop its trade with or its projects with With, with Russia, so um, um, this is a this is not as easy um, a question as it may uh, seem from Kiev. There are simply also private uh, companies. Uh, and that from the Western side are engaged in that. And uh, for a German government, it's not easy to simply interfere in those such uh, private projects. There's also a local political elite in Eastern Germany where the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines arrive that wants this project to happen because it means investments, it means development, it means uh, working places for people, and they don't care about Ukraine. It's, okay, it's but, 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 but uh, on the other hand, we see... So convergence in Germany and these political interests. We see this situation about social and democratic party and people like Schroeder, etc. So we see a certain political backing. So it's it's also, it would be naive to to, 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 to say that it is purely economic uh, project. So in this case, is Ukraine right? Yes, I would say, I, I mean, uh, Ukraine is certainly right and, and Germany um, does not uh, see here above all the, the mistake that Germany makes is that it sees as a political problem for Ukraine. It doesn't see it as a political problem for itself, although it is also arguably a political problem for Germany because uh, an escalation of the uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict will be also at the end of the day, a, a conflict for Germany and uh, maybe even a domestic problem for for Germany. Um, but the um, still, I think the it's that's very difficult to communicate um, in in Germany that uh, somehow uh, the interests of Ukraine should be more important than the perceived economic interests uh, of Germany. Um, it's a free market and Ukraine can make its offers and Russia make its makes its offers. And if there are 
Western, West European, not only German, West European um, private companies that are implementing a, a project with Russia. This is just how the international economy works and uh, um, it, it cannot be uh, simply uh, um, uh, suppressed by, by the government. But I think you will agree that the Ukrainian argument is not that it hurts Ukrainian interests, but it hurts the interests of many other states, including from, from the EU. And the argument is that the, basically Germany goes against many other EU countries. Would you agree with this interpretation? Well, um, you see, that the thing is that it's not done by Germany. It's, ju it's done by a number of Western private companies who have decided that this is for them a good project. And these these private companies are not interested in geopolitics or they are not interested in politics at all. They want to make money. And they've received an offer from Russia where they think they can make money. And um, this is how it is. It's not a governmental project from the from the uh, German side. And, and somebody like, like Schröder, I don't think, is, is interested in it because he he is interested in, in this project as a geopolitical pro uh, project. He just is earning a lot of money with it. Let's uh, come back to internal domestic Ukrainian issues. We are entering, we have entered already a very, uh, very hot election period. We will have presidential election uh, end of March and early April, two rounds. And then we will have parliamentary election, which will probably even more hot in October. For you as a European observer, what strikes you most in these elections? What interests you most? What gives you hope and what gives you disappointment? Well, what strikes me is, of course, the the big shifts in the uh, public opinion polls. Uh, we have now a very different situation from uh, only three months ago um, with um, a totally different favorite. And um, we don't know who will become president. We may get a president who is totally out of um, uh, out of the political spectrum. The favorite today, we're recording this uh, podcast on uh, 14th of February. It's Mr. Zelensky, who yeah. is a comic, who is a comedian yeah. and very un unexpected figure, you're right, three months ago. Yeah, and he's leading in the polls, not only for uh, the first round of the elections, but also in the predictions for the second round of the elections, where he, according to the last polls I've seen, would beat with a wide margin both Poroshenko and Timoshenko. So um, so if he gets into the second round, uh, currently it looks as he he would become the next president. He is a totally white sheet of paper to me. Um, I like him as a comedian. I followed um, his, his uh, satirical shows. I, I like the political satire he has made. The, he's a very talented uh, talented. Um, actor, but um, I don't know at all what kind of president he will be. So that's a problem. When you look at this kind of, this side of Ukrainian politics, do, do you see it is different from the European politics? So it is close because, for example, there are some people who compare Zelensky with five-star movements, mm -hmm. uh, with Beppo Grillo, etc. Yeah, so, and, and the other argument is that uh, uh, all of the world, uh, so worldwide, we entered the period when uh, 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 we started from a period when politicians tried to be actors and now we're entering a period when actors try to be politicians. Mm -hmm. So do you see more difference or more similarity? 
Well, I guess at the end of the day, it's quite similar, actually, to to the sort of rise of um, uh, political outsiders in the um, political spectrum. It's just uh, that it had uh, it happened so quickly and so suddenly in uh, in Ukraine until basically, I would say, even um, a, a couple of months ago. That was a, a not perceived, and um, uh, Zelensky was not an official candidate. He had no party, no uh, no campaign. Um, now he is leading in the polls um, in a way that's very similar actually to what we've been observing in other countries where these outsiders also um, making um, inroads into traditional politics. Um, but of course, Ukraine is in, dif in a different situation. It's in war and it is in a, in a geopolitical conflict. The stakes here are much higher. And one wonders how well prepared uh, Zelensky would be for the role of a Uh, commander-in-chief and, and main negotiator on the um, international um, arena. That's indeed true. That strikes me very much and uh, basically that fears me uh, as well. So you need a strong man to, to govern the country and now there is a lot of probability that the we will have a very well interesting maybe for some people but not interesting for others comedian but let let me ask a different question uh, zelensky comes from the southeast of ukraine right from uh right from this industrial region he says openly that he's anti-kremlin that he stops his business uh, in russia whereas you know, the investigative journalists say he, he did not don't you think that he's a kind of a new this kind of candidate from that part of Ukraine, which was traditionally pro-Russian, but which is not that pro-Russian anymore. Well, I, I think that is actually one of the positive aspects of his rise. And I've, I've written about that before, that um, if he could create a movement that would attract the Russophone part of Ukraine away from the successor parties of the party of regions to uh, to his movement, which is more pro-Western and, and not pro-Russian, that would be uh, an advantage. That's and, what's happening, actually. Yeah, and that is good. Um, but... Um, In a way, I would prefer if he would have um, a, a good, a large success in the parliamentary elections and then also have a large faction in the parliamentary elections. I'm just worried that um, he may not be prepared and he may not have the right team for um, uh, for the for the office of the president uh, because the the president is responsible for security policy foreign policy defense policies and i don't see him prepared for the, for that the only positive um, thing one could mention here about him that he seems to speak english uh, pretty well so that's good for um, for a, a future president but uh, he seems to I think not even fully understand that um, the job he is now going for um, is going to be much more complicated than his uh, entertainment business, where he it was admittedly right, um, uh, very, very successful. And I'm afraid that Russia will use this weakness very much. Well, um, um, yes, that could be, but um, I think at the end of the day, the the degree of agency of Ukraine in this entire confrontation is low anyway. So even if Ukraine would get a very good uh, commander-in-chief and president, I could imagine, for instance, Anatoly Hrtsenko being such a very suitable um, person for the office of the president, 
um, that wouldn't change actually that much. Uh, that uh, because the uh, the range of things that Ukraine can do is limited. Um, Ukraine, unfortunately, I would say, is very much dependent here on Western support and on domestic developments in Moscow. And um, in that way, maybe it's not that important who will be uh, president. When you look at the election, what disappoints you? Well, the signs that I now see um, with possible manipulation and the sort of the the little things that appear that, for instance, Mr. Alassania lost uh, or seems to be losing his job in in the uh, public broadcasting at a moment like this. Uh, so maybe there is criticism, justified criticism towards him, but of course it, it's very suspicious if he loses um, during the electoral campaign his his uh, job or that uh, entire uh, TV channels are taking a political, quite explicit political position in this, um, in these elections. This is not good. And I think it, um, also uh, we shouldn't have any illusions that uh, the international observers will, of course, note um, all these things. And uh, these are not secret developments and they are on, ev on everybody's watch. And I fear now that the OSCE report after the elections will be actually not that positive and that there will be lots of things noted and uh, there could be even mm, a sort of downgrading of the um, Ukrainian democracy because of that. We, that seems to be now um, an election um, this year that may be less democratic than in 2014. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is that uh, the uh, results of the elections are not known. So I'm I'm not very very uh, sort of happy about the prospects of Zelensky to become president. But on the other hand, this is also something that is very much um, a documentation of the independence of the Ukrainian voter who who do, who apparently does not let himself being manipulated by. Um, by TV channels that are uh, basically controlled by the incumbent president. Um, so this is the hopeful aspect about it. And that also makes me hopeful that at the end of the day, Ukraine will remain uh, a, a democratic country. Thank you very much, Andreas, for this very interesting talk. We had Andreas Umland, who is senior expert at Institute for International Euro and uh, Euro-Atlantic Cooperation. Excuse me. This was a Ukraine World podcast. UkraineWorld.org is an initiative aimed at explaining Ukraine to international audiences. Mm -hmm.